We have come to this great doxology here in Romans chapter 11 and for us to know, um, for us to understand and to grasp fully, which I don't think we can do, but to attempt to grasp fully um, this doxology, we need to know kind of where we have been. And if you were here last week, Gary, um, Gary kind of took you all through that, and so I'm just going to uh, uh, briefly briefly do that, but in Romans, there are two distinct sections of the letter. The first half, uh, Romans 1 through 11, is, is often called the doctrinal section, um, uh, where, where Paul lays out doctrine. Specifically, if you've been with us, what you know that Paul has been doing in the book of Romans is that this, this letter was written to the church of Rome as a missionary support letter, and in the first half of this letter, what Paul is doing is that he is laying out, he's laying out the gospel. Uh, one of the things we ask our missionaries to do on our forms is to tell us what they believe the gospel is, and we judge that by God's word. Here, Paul, as an apostle, he spends 11 chapters laying out the gospel, and that's the first major section of this book. And this morning, we get this doxology that does two things. Not only does it close out this section, but it moves us into the next section of this book, which is, uh, so how then shall we live? Based upon all we have heard and based upon this robust theology of salvation, how then shall we live? And so we will uh, we'll look at that in the weeks and months, maybe years to come. Um, depending. Gary and I have said that we will move faster through the second half, but we will see. But, but I want you to think with me just a little bit, just a little bit about through some of the themes, and I'm not going to catch them all, like I said, Gary did uh, some of that last week. But if we remember through our study of the book of Romans, one of the first things that we came across was that we were all born in sin, and we were all born with a need for a Savior, and that we couldn't... Um, unassisted, find our way to God, that we were dead in those trespasses and in those sins. And then we saw as we moved through this book, we, the, one of the major themes that came out, and like I said, I'm going very quickly through this and missing a lot of things, but one of the major things that came out was that our justification, our being made right before God, our standing before God was based on one thing. Our justification was based on faith. Faith in what? Faith that we could, we, could, we could do it, that we could bridge this gap? No, that faith was in the work of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ came and He died. And when Jesus Christ came and died, He took on my sin. He took the punishment for my sin. And what I got in return, if I put my faith in Him, was I got His righteousness so that I could stand before God. I could be reconciled to God as one of His children. What amazing love. What amazing mercy that is. And then we, we, we studied the great eight. Romans chapter eight. The great eight where it talks about that those who are loved by God. The gifts and the blessings that He has given us. The Holy Spirit. The adoption. The confidence the confidence at the end of Romans 8 that all things work together for good for those who 
love God. And we talked about that that confidence was not a confidence that everything was going to be like we wanted it to be. But the confidence in this God, this great, wonderful God that we serve, this confidence that even as we sang this morning, even in the tragedy, even in the darkness, that this great God is working that for our ultimate good. And this is the promise for all of those who have placed their trust and their faith in Jesus Christ. And then Paul moves. He moves for a couple of reasons. Uh, There are a couple of themes here that I do just want to point out. Paul moves from Romans 8 into Romans 9 through 11, where where the question is raised, well, well, what about the Jewish people? What about the ethnic Jewish people? Because the ethnic Jewish people had rejected the Messiah. And so the question is, what about these folks? And this is important for two or three reasons. One is that if God has not kept His promise to ethnic Israel, then there's nothing saying He won't keep His promise and the promises in Romans 8 to you and I. And so that's one of the motivations there. The other motivation is that um, Paul, as the apostle to the Gentiles, as he's looking to go to Spain to minister to Gentiles, wants to make sure that the Gentiles don't get prideful. And so he lays out for us uh, through... um, through the correct reading of the Old Testament, and I think even through prophecy, he lays out this beautiful salvation history that the gospel was given to the Jews. And then the Jews rejected the Messiah, and so the gospel went to the Gentiles. And remember in in chapter 11, the gospel is to, to the Gentiles until the full number comes in, and then all Israel will be saved. So Paul lays out this beautiful picture of God's salvation plan. And remember at the end a couple of weeks ago, at the end a couple of weeks ago, here's what, we, here's what we heard, starting in verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their, the Jewish people's disobedience, so also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, that they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience, so that He may show mercy to all. And so we end this section before the doxology, thinking about, and glorying in, and left with this thought of the mercy of God. And it's only fitting, it's only fitting to end this section with a doxology. Now a doxology, for those of you who may be younger in here, a doxology is, is, is kind of like a song or a formulaic uh, writing that expresses uh, truth um, towards God. And we have these all over uh, the Bible. One of the things that I want to say and that I want all of us to hear is that I think any time that we think about God rightly, any time that we think about God rightly, the thing that should well up inside of us is praise. So when I see this doxology here in the middle of this letter, I say, right. (laughs) This is fitting. (laughs) This is what should happen. 
so, so what happens, and part of this is going to go with spill into next week, and so in, in my mind, and I think throughout the Scriptures, and I think the way that God works, is that you see, when you have a right understanding about who God is, and a right understanding about who you are, the first thing that happens in our soul is worship. It springs up with this worship, this praise. We, we can't help it. We may all express that differently, but that's what should be happening on the inside of us. If it's not, then you're not seeing the gospel. You're not seeing God clearly for who He is. So praise, worship, expression. And then after that, after that, based on that, based on the truth, based on worship of right thinking, the next thing that happens is we live. We, we live. And so as you see, that's where Paul is taking us through this book. Now one of the things that I'm praying and that I've been praying that happens here at Single Mountain Bible Church, um, one of the things, one of the richest part of my life as a young pastor was uh, when, when I was at the church I was at previously at Crossroads and we went through the book of Romans, this just amazing thing happened. I mean, we hit these chapters and to be honest, Romans 9 and 9 was more controversial there than it has been here and uh, you know, we would hold meetings after the worship service to, to answer questions and this thing. But this just amazing thing kind of happened there. And I'm praying that this thing is happening with us. It surely is happening with me as I go throughout this again. But one of the things that happened is this whole idea of this God who is bigger than we could even imagine came to the forefront of our minds. And it informed things about us as a group of people. And one of the things that informed it informed our worship so that when we were singing or reading or praying or in the midst of preaching, we had a bigger view of who this God is and it changed how we did that. Does that make sense? It changed. There was a sense of awe, a sense of reverence that, that, that wasn't there in that way before. This idea of this big God, the other thing that it did is that it put this firmness under our feet so that as we were stepping out in faith and doing the things that we felt that God was calling us to do, things explicit in Scripture, then all of a sudden what happened is that was done with greater confidence because the confidence was in the big God of the Bible that we saw in Romans. It wasn't in the little Lewis that hoped things went well. And we're going to spend, like I said, weeks and months talking about that. And, and getting to this part of Romans also gave us then a sense of purpose. And in this phrase, all to the glory of God, became just the marching cry. And the opposite of that is uh, YOLO. Y'all know YOLO? YOLO, if you were hip enough, you'd know that means you only live once. <laughs> Thank you, Silas. And that's in direct contrast to what the Bible tells us about this big, great God that is that created the universe and is working in the universe for His glory and to Him be the glory, it's quite a different stance if that's where we are and if that's where we're getting our joy and if that's what's motivating us in the world, then I only live once. I might as well get it while I can. So of course, 
after the first 11 chapters, we get this doxology. And to me, this doxology is described, uh, the, the two things that I can best describe this as uh, is this. One, it, this doxology is kind of like drinking from a water hose. You get water in there, but you can't drink it all in, right? And, and the other thing, it's, it's almost like standing, I don't know if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon or anything like that, but it's almost like standing at the precipice of the Grand Canyon and looking out, and there's a sense of this greatness that, that you get when you're there, but it doesn't translate very well to people who haven't been there. And I'm sure if you go back several times, it, it, it grows in its majesty. And I look at this doxology like this. Now, the structure, uh, this, is, this doxology is a wonderful thing for a pastor because Paul lays it out and it works in threes. And uh, evidently, if you go to preaching classes, things are supposed to work in threes. And so what you have in this structure is you have three divine attributes that talk about the greatness of God, followed by three questions that I think we're going to see helps us locate what our position is in comparison to God, followed by three prepositions that kind of bring it all together. And the goal here is to be overwhelmed and amazed at this God and that it calls us to worship. So let's dig in and look at these three attributes of God. And um, different translations, as as we dig in, if we look at, we see these attributes in verse 33... Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable are His ways. And the NSB here has made a decision about the text that um, I am kind of going against and who am I to go against. Uh, but if you, if you read commentators, if you look at other pastors, there's a split on this and I don't think it matters. And I'll tell you why I'm making this decision. What I'm saying is that there are three attributes in the beginning of this verse that talks about the riches of God, the wisdom of God, and the knowledge of God. In the Greek, those three words are in the same tense. And I think later in this doxology, when it's talking about um, uh, who can give to God first to be repaid, I think it brings up this idea of riches again and the richness of God. Um, And so that's how I interpret this passage. There's nothing wrong with looking at this passage and saying uh, it's talking about the richness of God's knowledge, the richness of God's wisdom. Uh, but, but I think it's helpful to divide this out. But what I do want to spend a little bit of time on and explaining is notice what is modifying or explaining the, rich, the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. It says, oh, the depth. And, and the thought is, is that when Paul was writing this and the wording that he's using, that this is also used to explain the depths being the sea. And you think about somebody who lived in the first century, um, what the depths of the sea would mean to them. I think this was, I don't know when the snorkel was uh, invented, but I think this was before snorkel. There may have been some kind of little plant that you could breathe from, you know, a cane or something. But certainly, it was before submarines, before our ability to try to really go to the depths. But if you talk to any oceanographer, or if you watch on the Discovery Channel, anybody that spends time in the ocean looking and discovering, they are just blown away about the vastness of the depths of the ocean. 
And so it's interesting that Paul uses this wording here when he's talking. So when he says, oh, the depth, there is a magnitude and a greatness to this that goes deeper than we could ever imagine. And so the first thing that he takes us to is he says, oh, the depth of the riches of God. And I don't know if you have ever thought about this, but have you ever thought about how rich God is? Kids, help me here. So somebody under, fifth grade or under, what does God own? Everything. She said it. She mouthed it. (laughs) That's right. God owns everything. The richest person, the richest company, the richest country that you could think of pales in comparison to the richness of our God. And one of the reasons this is so is because how does God get His wealth or get His stuff? Anybody? Middle schooler? Does He work to earn it like we do? Does He go find it like we do? What does God do? Yes. He creates it. And what does God create out of? If God's going to create something, does He have to go to the store and buy ingredients and buy things in order to fix it? Nathan is saying no. What does He create out of? Nothing. How much nothingness is there? Infinite amounts. And so how rich is our God who creates out of nothing? We can't even fathom the richness of our God. And I think there's a third thing to this component about the richness of our God. And that is, I think when we look at the richness of God, we don't just think about material things, but we think about the richness of His attributes. We've just been talking over the past couple of weeks, especially two weeks ago, about the mercy of God. And think about, think about the richness, the wealth of the mercy of God. God's mercy is so great that He sent His Son to die on the cross. Unfathomable how rich God is in His mercy and in His other attributes. So how how deep, how majesty, how majesty, how how majesty, How majestic, thank you, is His riches. But not only that, our text then says, oh, the depth of His knowledge. Kids, again, help me. What does God know? Everything. God knows every... Think about this, adults and kids. God knows every fact that has ever existed in any book or Google search ever. And he is faster than Google. Can we even comprehend that? God knows everything about science. God knows everything about math. Can we even comprehend that? But not only does his knowledge stop there, God knows everything that has ever happened. And God also knows everything that will happen because God is outside of time. This God that we sang about this morning, we can't even fathom the knowledge of this God. 
the depth of His knowledge is so great and vast and beyond us. There is nothing that He does not know. So not only is His... Do we talk about His riches here? Does Paul talk about His riches? About His knowledge? But Paul also talks about, oh, the depth of the wisdom of God. Now, sometimes in the Bible, knowledge and wisdom are looked at side by side, and uh, that is fine. But I do think that there is a difference between wisdom and knowledge. Um, Wisdom is really discernment or judgment. Um, There's this fallacy in our world that um, if you have all the right facts, that you can be really wise. And a prime example of why that is a fallacy is because Satan knows more facts than any of us, and he is the most foolish thing that has ever been allowed to exist. But God is infinite not only in His knowledge, but God is also infinite in His wisdom, meaning that all His ways, everything that He does is just. Everything that God does is right. His plans, His purpose, they're all perfect. And so when you put this idea of wisdom and knowledge together, we get this... um, We get this idea of God's ordaining hand. And we just saw that Paul, as he's talking about God's salvation plan uh, in in Romans 1 through 11, and particularly in Romans 9 through 11, that God's plan of salvation is full of wisdom and knowledge. It is the best, it is the right, and it is the most just way. And if we don't understand, Or if we're calling Him into question, who's wrong? What percentage of the time? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Notice at the end of verse 33, kind of putting an exclamation on this. He talks about the riches, the wisdom, and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how unfathomable are His ways. And here we get this parallel where unsearchable, unsearchable and unfathomable are synonyms and His ways and His judgments are synonyms. But what He's telling us here is how uncomprehensible to us, finite human beings, are His ways of, of making decisions and His modes of dealing in humanity. Now, Paul doesn't leave us there. He takes us right to where we're going. He talks about the bigness and the greatness of who God is. And then Paul gives us three questions. And these three questions are designed to put us in our rightful place in comparison to God. So let's look at the first question in verse 34. Who has known the mind of the Lord? And it's inconceivable to think that we could know the mind of the Lord. In fact, I truly believe that if we got one uh, one hundredth of a percent of the mind of the Lord, that our brains would probably explode. We couldn't handle it. This is how big and how great our God is. Think about this. How do we know anything about God and His ways? Revelation. Revelation. The only way we know about God is because God has chosen to reveal Himself to us. God has given us His Word. 
God has given us what uh, Dr. Schreiner calls um, uh, spiritual binoculars. That when we look at it, we then can begin to see the world um, like it is. We then begin to know the mind of the Lord. And think about this. What we know about the Lord and what we know about the mind of the Lord is very finite. In fact, God is infinite, we're finite, and I believe, as well as some other pastors and other theologians, that we will spend eternity learning more and more and more about who God is, and and we're doing that with brains that are new. (laughs) This is how great and wonderful our God is. And so when Paul asked the question, who knows the mind of the Lord, what our response should be is, not me. Not me. He is way beyond me. So an example of this is when the Jews are rejecting the Messiah without revelation of what's taking place, we're left feeling hopeless for them. But God chooses in this Word to reveal to us that even though the Jews are rejecting the Messiah, that He has a plan. That He has not only figured things out, but, it, but ordained how things are going to happen. And so when we see God unveiling His plan to us, instead of standing in judgment of that, or standing in judgment over that, we need to place that above us and, and, and get in our right position and say, we have not known. The mind of the Lord is too great for me to know. The second question here. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or... Who has become his counselor? Who has the knowledge and wisdom uh, where you can give to God advice? Or that you can dictate to God information that he doesn't have so that he can make the decisions that he needs to make? And the obvious question to this is, um, no one. But this is one that I think a lot of us trip over, right? where we think we know best, or we think that we need to inform God of what He should do if He is just and true and loving and merciful. But I would ask you, how is your grasp on just the knowledge of the past, the present, and the future? You're disqualified. (laughs) You're disqualified. What do you think God thinks of your plan for the world? How things should go. This doesn't mean, I don't want you to take this and and think, well, Lewis, what about prayer? God wants us to bring our petitions to Him and He answers our prayer. This does not mean that we are not to pray to God, but when we go to God in prayer, we are to be praying from this standpoint of this is the God of the universe who doesn't need me to counsel Him He asks me and bids me to come and make my request known to Him. And I do that from this position of, you are the God of the universe, and I am me. And I do it out of gratitude that He allows me to come and to pray to Him. And I do it out of submission that He knows what's best. The third thing. This is... This is my favorite when we think about how great and rich God is. And that is who has given to God, who has first given to Him, that He might be paid back again. 
in other words, like, you know, God has come to you and is like, hey man, I'm really low on funds this week. Can you spot me a 20 and I'll get it back to you in a week? You say, oh no. Think about, think about the wording of this phrase. There's two things for us to see here. First is this. So, so think about the wording. Who has first given to him that he might be paid that, that he might be paid back to him again? So in other words, the first thing that we notice is what do we have that we did not receive from God? Nothing. So there's, there's nothing that we have that God needs from us. You see that? The other thing, notice the word first. First. Um, notice the word first. I'm sorry, I got backwards here. So the second thing, so, so that was the first thing. First, what do we have? The first given him. So what do we have that he didn't receive? God creates, we receive. Um, the second thing is this. Notice to be paid back. Uh, and this whole idea of being paid back, that God has to pay us back, denotes that, that God is in need or God is in want of something that He does not have. And one of the things that we know about God and one of the things that I want you to know about God is God is perfectly and joyously happy. Oh, this is a whole sermon. Uh, but He's perfectly the, the Trinitarian relationship of God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that God is perfectly happy and content and joyful within that relationship. There was nothing that is needed outside of that. And so we serve a God that is a giving God, not a God that needs in return. When God asks us to praise Him, or to give of our time, talents, treasure, it's not because He needs those things, it's because that's what's best for us. That's a whole sermon we need to get to someday, but not today. So, we have the three attributes, we have the three questions that put us in our position, and then lastly, we have these three prepositions that bring it all together. And I just love this phrasing. In verse 36, for from Him are all things. And we've talked about that, right? From Him are all things. That God has created everything. Everything comes from Him. And through Him are all things. What does this mean that through Him are all things? It means that God is not dictated to, but God is the governing King of the universe. And through Him or through His reign are all things. And to truly bring it all home, to Him are all things. That all things exist for His glory. The end of the, the passage here. To Him the glory forever. Amen. To Him be, or literally, to Him the glory forever. Amen. He and His glory is the end and is the ultimate purpose of all things in the universe. An example of what I mean by this is um, the salvation of the Jews and Gentiles that God is, that Paul is writing about, that God has inspired Paul to write about. That's not the ultimate end. 
the ultimate end is that God gets glory by the Jews and Gentiles being saved and coming in as one of His children. That's the end. And so we, as people of God, need to see this big God that from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Where we get this wrong, and our society and a lot of our churches are wrought with wrong theology, and you'll hear it in songs on Christian radio stations, you'll hear it coming out of pulpits, is that the, the thrust of the message is the end is you and your happiness and your relationship with God, and that is unbiblical, and that is always going to be unsatisfying. True satisfaction comes from recognizing that we serve a God and we were made to glorify and worship and lay down our lives and live for this God. And if we are believers and that is not the trajectory of our life, then life is always going to feel out of balance and out of whack. And I could name songs, I could name sermons. I know I named a sermon a couple weeks ago. I'm not going to get in the habit of that. where this theology is, is wrong. I've, I've, I've said this one before, so I'll say it again. It's not a sermon, a song. He couldn't imagine heaven without you. That's scary ground. That denotes that God needed me in heaven to be happy. It's not true. It's not true. And the problem with this moralistic, therapeutic, deistic type of theology means that we get things ucky and yucky and backwards and we invert theology to where God is in service to us and to my well-being. And God loves us so much that He will not let us stay in that because that's not what's best for us. What is best for Him is for us to get on with our purpose and our reason for living, and that is to give glory and honor to God. And if you don't understand that, Romans 12.1 is not going to make any sense to you. And the whole second half of Romans is not going to make any sense to you. But if you understand that, and if you understand the greatness of God, if you understand who God is, then Romans 12 and on will open up a world to you of um, joy that comes with difficult things. So, to end, I want to read uh, a passage, part of a passage in Isaiah chapter 40, and then I want to just lay out what someone who um, truly understands this doxology, uh, what characteristics or parts of application that I think come from that. So let's look at Isaiah 40. And I'm going to start with verse 3. But you'll, you'll begin to hear the thrust. And, and some, of the, some commentators believe that some of the quotations in the doxology came from Isaiah 40. And I think that's probably true. Listen to the prophet Isaiah. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. 
Make smooth the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken and a voice says, Call out. Then he answered, What shall I call out? Listen to this. All flesh is grass. And all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. Get up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, Here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with His arm ruling for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. Like a shepherd, He will tend His flock in His arm. He will gather the lambs, He'll carry them in His bosom, and He'll gently lead the nursing ooze. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand, and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust on the earth by the measure and weighed and weighed the mountains in balance and the hills in a pair of scales who has directed the spirit of the lord or who, or as his counselor has informed him with whom did he consult and who gave him understanding and who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding behold The nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, He lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations, all the nations are as nothing before Him. They are regarded by Him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with Him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock been taken root in the earth, but He merely blows on them and they wither. And the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom will you liken me that I will be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? And the justice do me escapes the notice of my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. 
He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youth grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. This is our God. And if we understand who this God is, the first thing it does to us is to produce in us a sense of humility. And that is the right position to start from. The greatness of our God, the lowliness of me, a sense of humility. The next thing that comes in word of application here is not only humility, but then it it brings a sense of awe and a sense of amazement that leads to worship. You cannot understand who this God is and know that you are loved by Him, a sinful creature that you are, and not be amazed and moved to worship. And then, the other thing, it gives you confidence. It gives you confidence. Do you believe that this is your God, that this is our God? And if this is our God, what are you scared of? A God that blows and the rulers of this earth are just thrown away. What are you scared of if this is our God? So, my prayer, my prayer is as we move into next week and as we prepare to talk about our spiritual act of worship, that as we move through this book, that we will we'll do it with confidence. We'll do it with humility. And we'll do it with boldness. And that we'll learn. We'll learn how to love one another. We'll learn how to stick up for injustice. We'll learn how to live in a society that seems to be decaying and falling all around us. That we'll learn that the strength to endure and the strength to do that comes from our confidence in this great God. Let's pray. Oh, great God, of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. God, I wish that we could constantly and fully stand in amazement of who you are. God, but we know that this will not happen until we are with you, with our new bodies, with our new minds, that we will not be in the place where we can just stand in awe and amazement forever. So God, as we are here with imperfect minds, imperfect bodies, imperfect comprehension, God, I pray that you, your spirit, would just give us the grace that as we read the pages of your word, that we will terminate, we will terminate the purpose of this at the right place, and that's to your glory, because you are the only one who deserves our glory and praise. God, I pray, Lord, that this doxology, this message written by your servant Paul, would just encourage us this morning. Give us boldness. Give us love. God, we're so thankful that you have given us your word, that you've revealed yourself to us through the word, but ultimately in your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.